What's up? You're listening to The Long Game, and I'm your host, David Lee Kim, co-founder of Omniscient Digital. In this episode, we chat with Brandon Redlinger, VP of Marketing at Crosscheck, a hiring intelligence platform that helps talent leaders optimize the recruiting process and improve the quality of their hires. Previously, Brandon was the first or second marketer at B2B software companies building the marketing engine from the ground up. He was an early employee at Engageo, where he held nearly every marketing position. Engageo was acquired by Demandbase, where he went on to lead the DemandGen team. He then led product marketing at Revenue.io until his current post at Crosscheck. He also recently launched a podcast about all things operations called the OG Ops Pod. That's OGOpsPod.com. In this conversation, we talk about account-based marketing, how to implement it, and what marketers often get wrong. He shares how he made the jump from demand gen to product marketing and his learnings from leading marketing teams and building them from scratch. We also get into the value of using LinkedIn to build relationships and a personal brand and how that can really accelerate your career. I think you're going to learn a lot. I sure did. Here's my conversation with Brandon Redlinger. Brandon, welcome to The Long Game. David, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you, man. So before we get to all the business stuff, I've listened to a couple of your other interviews and found your bio on SlideShare, which you probably haven't updated in years. <laughs> SlideShare, and... yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that now I'm curious, what am, I, what am I getting into here? <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you were a professional trainer, like you were an a- elite athlete previously, right? So, yes. And there was one interview, you said you, did, you worked out six days a week. Are you still doing that? The heck yeah, man! I, I, yeah. I I'm I'm still pretty yeah, I'm still pretty passionate about working out and staying healthy. Um, but I yeah, I don't I don't do any personal training anymore. My my personal training certification and health coach and nutrition, like all those certifications, have lapsed. But you know, I'll still use it in my own personal life. Yeah. What well, What was all that training for? Like, were you a pro athlete or no? No. So I I grew up uh, playing pretty competitive hockey. Um, so traveling around, playing on a lot of different yeah. teams, uh, growing up, played through college. And then, um, I just, I, I went to Boulder, which is university of Boulder, uh, or university of Colorado in Boulder, which is Boulder is like kind of a health Mecca in and in itself yeah. Yeah. and just met a lot of just like just health geeks up there and fell in love with it and kind of went down that rabbit hole for a bit. And, um, yeah, started my own business. I mean, I thought. I thought that all I had to do was get my certifications, hang my shingle up, and people would come pounding down my door. And it was it was quite a rude awakening that like I that's not the case. I had to go figure out the business side, um, and and actually fell in love with the business side so much that I, I I turned my entire career towards the business side and and kind of never looked back. Yeah, I, I love that you made that pivot, but you're still like, well, I'm still going to work out six days a week. Doesn't mean I'm going to stop. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you, I'm you not doing Ironmans like you, but you know. <laughs> oh no, no Ironmans yet. I just, I just got comfortable swimming in a pool. So Ugh. you know, maybe Ironman in the future. But uh, I think you kind of gave a hint um, to uh, the response to my next question. But you're currently VP of Marketing at Crosscheck. Uh, you were previously head of growth at Persist IQ, ran growth at Demandbase. Then you were at Ring DNA, which I just learned became Revenue.io. Yep. 
what were the key milestones in your life that you'd say led you to where you are? Like kind of yeah. the highlight reel. Yeah, yeah, good question. So I do think it is um yeah, so back back when I was was building my own business, um again, got my certifications, thought it was going to be easy, and all I needed was the credential, but then realized I needed to learn the sales and marketing side and just really dove headfirst into that. And I was getting so many clients that I was actually giving a, giving uh, referrals away to other people that I graduated with, my colleagues. And, and they're like, okay, you figured something out here. Can you teach me how to do di- business development? And then I really transitioned over to the yeah let me let me actually teach other people how to do sales and marketing mainly the marketing side and 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 uh sales development and then um yeah kind of kind of never really looked back ended up getting a job in in sales with one of the companies that I got my certification through the institute for integrative mm-hmm. nutrition I did sales with them for a little bit and then I, I I never really meant to get in sales. I always loved the marketing side of things, but that company was the first company that really opened my eyes up to how scientific marketing could be. Because the head of marketing at that company, she knew her shit. She knew her stuff inside and out, and she showed me like, hey, if I put a dollar in over here, you know, twenty late. 28 days later, it comes out a dollar eight over here. But if I put in a dollar over here, here's what happens. And she showed me her system. I was like, okay, that's cool. I want to learn that. And that was my transition out of sales and into marketing. And then um, was the first marketing hire at a few companies and then ended up getting recruited by John Miller to go join Engageo, which was yeah one of the big, um, of course, ABM companies at the time and helped build that uh, marketing engine from the ground up, was with them through the acquisition, stayed on at demand base for a little bit and was was really going down the route of being known as like the ABM guy and the demand gen guy. Whereas my vision was always to lead a marketing team. And I and and I was just getting pigeonholed down that one path. And I was like, if I really want to be a good marketing leader, I need to round out my skill set a little bit more. Um, so I actively sought out opportunities on the product marketing side and was really fortunate to uh, be given the opportunity by the guys at Revenue.io. Like you mentioned, Ring DNA was the name of the time we went the whole rebrand, which was a fun exercise. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, um, that was... Yeah, that was a great opportunity for me. Really thankful to William Tyree, the CMO over there, for giving me that opportunity and and really came in, built the product marketing engine there until I was uh, given the opportunity here at, at Crosscheck. So yeah. So you you mentioned this and you kind of just mentioned it in passing, but you got recruited by John Miller and you were not in tech before that. So how did that come to be? Yeah, totally. Um I was actually putting so yeah, I I got hired as the first marketing hire at as you mentioned, Persist IQ. I was doing just right, a right, lot right. of and th- this was this was when there was no so Persist IQ is in the sales engagement space. And this was before there was a clear few winners in that space. There was Tout App and Yesware, but this was before outreach and sales off really blew up. Mm. So Persist mm-hmm. was one of kind of the key, the 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 big competitors in that space at that time and that was when they were, you know, a few dozen people and same with sales off they were a little bit bigger at the time and we were just doing as much as we could to to help educate the market 
And, and um, this was also when sales, uh, account-based sales development and account-based marketing was really hitting the scene. Yeah. So you don't hear about account-based sales development anymore, but that was a huge thing. And, and Lars Nilsson at the time, you know, had put out his seminal piece and really became known as the sales development guy. And we did some work with him and I was putting out content. John Miller saw my content and said, Hey, I love what you're doing. I love how you're thinking. I love the the company you've built. Why don't you come run marketing over here? So that's that's how I ended okay. up. Yeah. yeah, when when um when I found out that he even knew my name, I, I was like, yeah. damn, John Miller knows <laughs> who like I am. OG, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, it's funny. He he invited me into the office just to have a chat. And then he offered me the job there. And I was like, oh, oh, oh I didn't know what that that's what this was. Um wait, what? <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like uh can i think about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i was like so um, what, did you like what sign a contract on the spot or what no no i uh <laughs> he, he ended up he's like look i i, I uh he's basically like i've heard everything i want to know why don't you come work for me and i was like uh, oh um yeah. um well sure sure why not and he's like okay i'm gonna set you up talk with talk with these two people on the team already had very casual conversations with them. And then that's, that's when the offer came. So, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's definitely a power move. Like, I mean, you're maybe you can do that to one of the people you want to hire at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That'll uh, be the goal. So, yeah, you mentioned earlier, like, so you built marketing from scratch numerous times and the common thread across a lot of these things seems to be like account-based marketing or account-based sales. How did you end up being the ABM guy? Because I think up until just a few years ago, ABM was kind of this nebulous thing that I'd ask multiple people what it was and everyone would give me a different answer. Totally. Like, yeah. How did you end up being the person like that ran these campaigns and became known for, for ABM? I, I think it, it it really was born out of kind of two things. One, just curiosity. I think of myself as a pretty curious guy. I think that has really gotten me to where I or helped get me to where I am today. But also another part of it was just the the challenge. I love a good challenge. And part of the challenge back at the time was um, it, it was helping define the space. So a lot of people talk about category mm-hmm. creation, right? I'm less interested in category creation and more interested in like category design. And mm-hmm. like, how do I help shape how people think about this category. To me, that was really exciting. And to me, that's what that's what Engageo was really good at doing. That's what we focused a lot on. ABM was around long before any of the tech vendors were, but the tech vendors were just the best at actually taking the idea and promoting it. And and then it was us really trying to shape how people thought about it so that they, when they were ready to do ABM, of course, they would buy our software, not the other guy's software. So it, it was a lot about how do I shape how people think about this? Yeah, it's sort of like all the different tactics and strategies exist before. Like I, it's kind of analogous to inbound marketing at HubSpot. Like everyone's yeah. doing all the things, but HubSpot just like packaged it up nicely and said, hey, this is this is the thing we're calling it, and this is the methodology. But it sounds totally. like you would you were doing a similar thing then at Engageo. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And there were a lot of, um, yeah, a, a lot of cool tactics or, or campaigns that we could even get into too. But um, yeah, it, it really was one of those things where it was um, like, this was, this was even before category creation, category design was a big thing. It was just like, this is how we build a great company. 
Now we didn't go out there to say, we want to dominate the category or we want to create the category. It was just like, here's how we think about what good marketing is these days and what good company building is yeah. these days. Yeah. It's like, instead of talking to talk, you're just focused on like putting into work and walking to walk and building. Just, yeah, exactly. Just execute. Yeah. Before I want to get into specific campaigns or some folks have called them like ABM orchestrations. Um, before we get there, you did mention in a separate interview that there's, you see a differentiation or you decoupled ABM from demand gen. And I'll be honest, before I heard that, I just thought of demand gen as the umbrella and ABM was one of the playbooks that you're running as part of your demand gen program. That sounds incorrect now. Uh, so maybe for the audience, how do you describe the difference between ABM and demand gen? You know, I, I, I've actually changed my thoughts a little bit on this okay. too. Yeah, totally. I, I, I do almost think these days it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just a, like ABM is kind of a, just another flavor of of demand gen, and I don't even necessarily need think you need your own ABM managers and your own. Oh, okay. No, Tell it's just more. part of. Yeah, it's just part of. It, it's just part of good smart demand gen these days. Of course, you got to make sure it fits with the the go to market strategy of your company, right? And mm -hmm. uh, like everyone these days wants to move up market. There's no surprise there. Yeah. And ABM is a great way to help you do that, but you just have to make sure that your company is really set up to do it. And just by buying ABM tech doesn't mean you're actually doing ABM. Um, mm -hmm. And I think tech just amplifies just more of what you're doing. So if you're doing crappy marketing, you buy tech, you're just going to be doing more crappy marketing, you know? Yeah. 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 I, one, I love that you are able to like evolve your beliefs and be like, actually, I don't agree with what I used to say. Anymore. Yeah, like, totally. It, it takes a lot of intellectual honesty to do that and like kind of sh shoot your ego a little bit. Like, okay, past, past branding is wrong. I don't agree with that. Yeah. that anymore. Some of the stuff that I used to say, man, it's like, you know, it makes me makes me embarrassed. <laughs> you and me both, man. So um, maybe we can get into a specific campaigns. And the, the context here, I've, I've spoken to a lot of folks who, as you have said, they're all trying to move up market to try to be more efficient with the marketing spend. And mm -hmm. my first question is always, oh, you, are you going to be running account-based marketing? And I say, yeah, we're thinking about it. And when I dig into a little bit, I realize that they have no clue what they mean by saying they want to run ABM campaigns. Totally. And, and it's, it's, I want to help more, but you know, that's something internally got to figure out and I can only provide some guidance, but maybe you can walk us through what it's like to run an ABM campaign from beginning to end. And if you can like use an example to walk us through what that looks like, and that might give folks a starting point of, okay, we don't really know how it's going to look for us, but we at least have something to model off of. Yeah, totally. Okay. So, um, a, a few thoughts around this, there's, there's having there's doing ABM campaigns which are more like one-off things, but there's having mm. a, a really full ABM strategy. And like I, I see people on social that are like, it took me one week to stand up this ABM campaign, you know, to actually do ABM. And I I selected my target accounts and then built some landing pages and then had my reps go after these these uh specific accounts. Cool, that's good. Like I'm 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 never gonna say that's bad, but that's not a full strategy, right? That's yeah. that's a cool campaign that you did and that probably got you 
decent results. If you're, if you're doing it right, it probably got you better results than your regular demand gen, mm -hmm. or it might've taken you a little bit longer, but you're closing bigger deals. Great. But when I think about a full ABM strategy, it's like, okay, do, do I have all the things in place that I need to make ABM successful? So what are those things? It's, it's of course, sales and marketing alignment. Everyone talks about sales and marketing alignment these days, but it, I mean, it's actually kind of funny. Like a lot of people still don't know how to actually align like we're still talking about, i remember writing blogs about this in 2016 it's marketing is what hubspot called it if you remember <laughs> exactly exactly but okay so okay so when i think about what is sales and marketing alignment there's there's like aligning strategically and then there's aligning like like tactically um and when when i'm talking about like aligning strategically it's like having the same KPIs and having um having the same goals, speaking the same language, like I'm meeting with my head of sales regularly. And it's like it's to the point where we've we've got such a rhythm, we've got such a good relationship where it's like I can text him or I'm calling him. And and that like that's how you know you actually have alignment. It's um when you when you don't have alignment, it's like, well, we only talk when we have our scheduled like weekly one-on-one. -on -one, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, like. Um, but then, yeah, we're looking at the same dashboards. We're reviewing the same things. He comes to my my campaign planning meetings. I go to his meetings so that like we know exactly what each other is doing all the time, right? Like I don't expect him to help me be part of the uh, planning of the campaigns, but he needs to know exactly what those campaigns are so he can go back to his team and communicate. All right, here's what's coming down the pipe. Here's where to go to find it, here's how to talk about it, here are the personas, et cetera, et cetera. So that when we launch our campaigns, we drive the leads in and we drive the accounts in, then they can actually pick it up from there and go, right? Like a lot of the times people, like marketers will launch their ABM, send the leads over, send the accounts over, and then sales goes, wait, I don't know how to like effectively talk about this piece of content that you put out. Or it's mm -hmm. like a, a really high level thing, like the, the top, 50 marketer, B2B marketers that you should know. Okay, how does that actually translate into a conversation about what we do, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it's gotta be very explicit and the sales team really has to know how to do that. So anyway, that's a quick aside on sales and marketing alignment. But then the other things that you really have to make sure that you have nailed down when you're thinking about ABM, is like, okay, say that hypothetically your this big account closes, do you actually have the right team to implement? Do you have the right mm -hmm. team to to onboard? Oh, so beyond sales and marketing, hundred percent, man. Like, if th th this, I speak from experience here. Is if you don't have the team to actually, so implementing an enterprise company is a lot different than implementing in an SMB company, right? Mm -hmm. So it it takes a lot longer. It's going to be a lot more complex. You're mo most often dealing with multiple instances of the same platform, like. Salesforce, right? Like some of these big companies have six, seven different versions of Salesforce or Marketo or whatever it is. If you've never wow. done that before, again, speaking from experience, they might never actually get implemented. We we had a company, I won't say which which company this was or what company I was at at the time. We closed this, the biggest deal in history. And it was a, a, a key logo, a marquee logo that we wanted to put all over our website. We they they never got implemented. Six months into the implementation, they're they're still paying us multiple six what? figures. They're like, we're done. 
Like, we're not even going to try to implement you anymore. Sorry. So the best thing that we got out of it was we could throw their logo on our website for the one-year contract, and that's it. That, that's the only thing we got out of that contract. So like, wow. yeah, you, you need to make sure that you can implement and that you can support these enterprise organizations before you actually go out and start doing ABM. So I think that is one overlooked piece. Yeah. So it's it's like, okay, you want to do ABM. Are sales and marketing speaking the same language? Are they, as you said, aligned? And do you have the team to implement once you close one of these folks? Now let's start running like the campaign or like set up what this whole orchestration is going to look like. And I imagine like <clears throat> in previous talks you've given, it's like choose your target accounts. Yep. What comes after that? Like, how do you start thinking about, okay, how do you want to break into these accounts? Yeah. The, okay. Good question. And, and, and this goes to, okay. I think there's, there's so much focus on personalization these days uh-huh. and, and you know, personalization is not enough. In fact, I think personalization is overrated. Okay. I think personalization Ooh, is totally overrated. Hot take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone talks about like personalization and maybe it wins, but the truth is like, that's only part of the game. And it's like, oh, we root for the same hockey team or the same football team. Uh, okay, cool. I'm not going to buy your you know six-figure software because of that alone. Um, the, like To me, the winning formula is personalization and relevance and timing. So again, we all know personalization. Most people understand the timing piece of it, um, but those two mo- matter uh, a lot less if you get the relevance piece right. So relevance is about delivering commercial insights to the business to help them solve a real business problem, right? ITSMA put out some some data that that shows 92% of executives will pay attention to unsolicited messages from companies they've never heard of if it contains ideas that are relevant to them. So in other words, you really got to show up with an understanding and knowledge of their business and their unique business issues and their industry. And then you have to give them fresh ideas to, you know, hopefully help your buyers look good and yep. help your buyers meet their goals. And that's really hard to do. So, so you can deliver the most personalized message in the world, but if it's actually not relevant to them and you don't show that you actually understand them and their business, it doesn't matter. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you brought that up. I saw a post on LinkedIn recently from uh, Pete Caputa, who's CEO at Databox, he used, yep. he used to work together at HubSpot. Oh, nice. He was like, awesome. Yeah. He was like, isn't it silly that we put BDRs who are like sometimes the most junior, inexperienced people without knowledge of the industry as the people to reach out to busy executives That's who right, man. Like, like are they're expected to know the industry, they're expected to know what a C-level like uh, leadership cares about. And it's like, isn't that just setting them up for, for like failure? And so it's interesting how you mentioned this relevance and knowledge of the industry. Like, how how does one staff up on a sales side at least? Like, you don't want kind of BDRs trying to break into accounts, right? Right. So, well, maybe, maybe. So, okay. so first, first off, one, I I love career BDRs or career like you, you never hear of it. But when I come across someone who's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to become an AE in the next year. Like, I just really want to focus on doing my job and doing my job really well. And, Hmm. you know, I I just want to, I, I, I'm fine with staying in BD. Like, I love those people. Like, yeah, 
because they're they get really good at what they do. The, the other piece of that too is I'm really big on verticalizing. So like especially when it comes to ABM, like the the traditional model for sales territories is by geo, which okay, mm-hmm. cool. That 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 makes sense if you're doing traditional sales, you're selling to a lot of people. But to to our point here, what we're talking about is actual industry knowledge. Why don't you actually have your AEs and your SDRs be focused on a specific vertical and only learn about that vertical and only talk about and talk to companies in that vertical? And then now they're starting to build that industry knowledge because if you're talking, yeah. because if if it's by geo, you're still selling to 10, 12 different verticals. There's no way that you can actually speak the language of all of those different verticals, right? Yeah. So... Uh, so territories by vertical make a lot more sense to me when you're doing true ABM. Sure, time zones might be a little different. You know, you're working either early hours sometimes, late hours. Like I'm sure the the money that the reps are going to make, they'll deal with it, right? <laughs> so uh, I, I want to before we move on from ABM, I'm of the belief that, and I think ABM is a particular space where this happens a lot. I think people spend too much planning, time planning and looking at tools and not enough taking uh, time taking action and like getting insights, iterating, learning and, and going from there. And I think with ABM, there's like all these different tools available. You can get demos of all of them, yeah. what the differences are. Like it's kind of uh, like vague what the differences are. So yeah. maybe for, for all those companies that want to implement ABM and don't have the time to evaluate all that don't have the money to spend on like these expensive tools how do you recommend they get started like what's the mvp like abm orchestration they can just set up to validate whether it's worth investing in more uh, okay good good question so um I, I will say as long as you are really selecting your target accounts correctly in the beginning that that goes a long way. It almost doesn't really matter the the uh, the, the the tactic or the the channel that much. Like I, I'm a, okay. More recently, I'm of the thought of th- this applies more to just you know maybe smaller ish companies, not the big enterprise organizations, um, because I I still do a lot of consulting for these smaller companies. But what I'm what I'm realizing is that like if you're doing the account selection process good in the beginning and you're doing you're doing some good research. It doesn't matter the actual channel. They spend so, to your point. They spend so much time building the the playbook and thinking through. Okay, day one I do this. Day two I do this, and they build it out. It's like mm-hmm. it, it actually doesn't matter. Just go do stuff. Go go go. Like actually go do stuff. If it's a relevant message and you can show up with some personalization and some timing, like they, they will they'll reply in whatever channel that they usually communicate in. So if it is email, cool, great, go send some emails, but also go send LinkedIn messages. Also go send some direct mail, like do as much as you can, because if it's personalized and it's relevant, they're going to reply. So don't mm-hmm. spend so much time like focusing on one channel or getting the most out of one tactic. It's just like, go do as much stuff as you can to get in front of that account. And then when you hit the channel that they like communicated in, then they'll reply. And also just like one buyer at one company might have one preference or is the same exact title and the same exact, they look same on paper. He just has a different personal preference on how he wants to communicate. So again, it's just like, go do stuff. 
It, it just yeah. drives me crazy sometimes that people over plan and over complicate the actual orchestration side. But again, if, if you're doing your account selection process right in the beginning, you're using your, uh, yeah, you, you have a very thoughtful process on how you do that. You're working with your sales team, you're using historicals and then, okay, great. We have, we have our buyers or we have our ICP. We have our buyers now go, just go. Yeah. That's what I tell I people. I feel like the co- the common pushback I've heard to just like doing stuff is like, oh, what if it doesn't scale? And it's like, you don't have anything to scale. Don't worry about scale right now. Just exactly. see what works. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like we'll we'll worry about scale. And yeah. My my thing is always, and, and this is true whether it's ABM, whether it's demand gen, whether it's almost anything else that I do, but it's like, how can I test this as quickly as possible at as low risk as possible so that I can mm-hmm learn i'm creating those feedback loops so that i am improving what i'm whatever i'm doing and like you said sometimes it doesn't scale and that's fine and we'll figure that out but if it works now in the beginning great yeah yeah it's sort of like i mean where where i'm what i'm getting from what you're saying is don't worry about the tools even just like go to linkedin and five, five, find five companies that you want on your target list and then just like find the right people i don't know send a gift through Sendoso or whatever, like send some LinkedIn messages. Don't worry about automations or like account lead matching and stuff yet until you, like, I don't know, you're at that scale where you need to do that stuff. Right. It, it, exactly. Exactly. There's a lot that you can do with your current demand gen tech stack and just do it a little bit more targeted and do it a little bit more intelligently. And then sure. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe you can. Okay. So yeah. So this is another, another big thing of mine is like, yeah, don't don't go out and buy tools until you have proven that it does work, right? Mm-hmm. Like Sendoso, one of the companies I worked at, we all day, like we we were so good with Sendoso, we nailed that channel. And then the next company, they had Sendoso, they couldn't figure it out. And it's like, okay, so we, we can't use, right? So it's just like, let's let's make sure that this channel is actually going to work for us let's prove it out we have a hypothesis we have a methodology for for testing that hypothesis and then once we figure out okay direct mail is a viable channel for us now we can actually invest there instead of let's invest mm-hmm. there and see if it works out like you're throwing money away if you're doing it yeah. that way it's backwards yeah so i want to switch gears a little bit because there's also another interesting part of your career where you've built teams from scratch a few times now. So I'd, I'd love to learn more about like, hey, you joined this company, like you just uh, joined another a new company. How do you diagnose the team that you need to build? Mm. And like the order of hiring, like, I guess maybe one part of that is even like, what's a minimum viable team for you to validate like where you need to hire further? Yeah, good question. Good question. Um, yeah, I've of course thought about this one a lot too, and and made a lot of mistakes along the way. And um, the the way that I my most recent thinking about this is, let's let's really look at the buyer's journey. You got to start with the buyer's journey, right? And and too many marketers out there, you know, they, they have their playbooks, and they like to go from company to company and take the playbook and just run the same playbook, whereas. I I don't think that really like that doesn't work. That doesn't work a lot of the times, unless it's like the exact same company, right? The exact same profile, the exact same stage, the exact same sales cycles. Like it hardly ever works. I've hardly ever seen it work. Um. So um, yeah. So so really start with understanding that buyer's journey, and and then there 
after that, after you've mapped out the buyer journey, now let's look at your funnel, which should be informed by your buyer's journey, by the way. Um, if you can't, like, you, you can't just put a funnel together and force buyers down your funnel because that's how you want them to buy. You have to understand how they actually do buy and how they want to buy. Um, okay, now that I'm looking at my funnel, I'm actually doing kind of a diagnostic to see where the opportunities are. I'm looking at, um, I, I'm, Okay, now we're really getting into like measurement and attribution here a little bit, but I, yeah, I think it's it, it. <laughs> okay, cool. Like I'm looking at value, volume, and velocity and conversion at every stage along the funnel. And and those th those are the real metrics that I use at every stage. And specifically, I'm looking at changes, right? So so metrics are only good if they're if if they're like comparative, like if they they uh, are in context and they can actually tell you how to act. So I'm looking at value, volume, velocity, and conversion over time. And then I can see if there is a big opportunity, if people are getting stuck in this one spot. And then I can I can actually segment from there. Or may maybe it's by vertical or by by um by segment. All of my enterprise deals get stuck here. So once mm. I actually figure out where the big opportunities are. I can, and then I take my own strengths into account. What am I really good at? Okay, now where can I fill in the gaps on my team? And in general, I like really high level. I look at like th there's really three pillars in marketing for me. There's demand gen, there's product marketing, and there's corporate marketing. So under demand gen, I do put ABM under demand gen. It's not its own thing now. It's it's under demand gen. So it's 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 demand. It's a uh, ABM. It's field marketing. I put partner marketing under there. Uh, content, digital, all your paid channels. I do put marketing ops under there. Um, and then the other the other pillar is product marketing. So this is your traditional go to market, your launches, your messaging and positioning, um, um, market research and insights, competitive intelligence, that sort of thing. I I do put enablement in there, sales enablement. I know a lot of people will put that under sales. I think there is a point where uh, it it does move over to sales under larger organizations and they'll, they'll have its own discipline under sales. Whether it's under marketing or under sales, I want my product marketer to be heavily involved in your enablement. Mm -hmm. And then the last piece of product marketing is, is pricing and packaging. And that's another one that I think sometimes it lives under sales, sometimes it lives under finance. I think that it's best served uh, your company's best served if you put it under product marketing because they are they're actually closer to uh the the customer they have a more objective understanding of the customer and there's not misaligned incentives right mm -hmm. like of course sales is going to want to price it higher so that they can get better commissions or whatever that might be right um and they're also much better at doing the customer development, the customer interviews, having those willingness to pay conversations so that they'll understand pricing and packaging more. Um, okay, so that's that's product marketing, and the last one is corporate marketing. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's AR, PR, media relations, community. I I, I put community I under there. Right. Um, branding, I like to put under there. Customer marketing, although I, I saw a recent uh, a recent poll from I think it was Pavilion or or one of those organizations where it was actually split almost evenly between uh, customer marketing going under corporate marketing, product marketing, and demand gen. But anyway, I put it under under corporate marketing. Um, okay. 
And then, so now I'm actually filling out, okay, again, we started with the buyer journey. We're looking at our own sales process and where the gaps are. I'm looking at my own strengths. And then I'm looking at, okay, what are the opportunities and who do I need to, uh, to put in place to fill in some of those gaps? Um, and, and that's kind of how I think about building a team. Yeah. And you kind of have these envision, like, yeah, we have these three pillars with the different roles underneath them. Like you're prioritizing and deprioritizing like, okay, we probably don't need like community or PR right now, but we definitely need like demand gen and a product marketer. Cause we don't like, we need to fix our messaging and positioning and so on. So yeah, that, that's a really helpful framework. Yep. Yeah, totally. And, um, and earlier on, I like to hire people that have just a broader skill set and, and really specialize in one area. Uh, you know, the, it, I still think it's great advice. It's been slammed out there a little bit recently, but like the T-shaped marketer, right? Mm -hmm. If you're familiar, it's, yeah, you have a broad breadth of of uh, skills, but you go really, really deep on one or two skills. So that that gap that you need, have it be that thing that they go really deep on. But I think there's so much value in hiring people that have that broad set, uh, that broader set of skills and that they understand different pieces of both marketing and the overall, you know, go to market motion of a business, because whoever you hire, they'll understand, okay, if I do this one tactic, which I'm really good at, here's how it affects everyone else. Whether yeah. if, if you hire someone who's only really good at one thing, and they don't have that breadth, they don't understand that. So they might make suboptimal decisions that will affect other parts of the business that you're, you might have to fix later, or that yeah. might just might, might not be optimized. Yeah, on that topic of the the T-shaped marketer, I I that was a great model for me in developing my career. I think nice. Um, totally. I think we might have heard it from both from Brian Balfour. Yes. Um, yes. And the the interesting conversation going on right now is like there's a lot of stuff happening in marketing. There's like these layoffs happening. So I'm curious from where you stand as a marketing leader, what are the key skills or areas you believe marketers who both like new and tenured should at least be exploring? right now to add to the repertoire? Yeah, good good question. Okay, so so I almost think in terms of like, yeah, uh, skill set. Yeah, okay. So it's like communication, I think is like, th that's, not, that's not necessarily like a, a channel itself, but that translates over to whether that's your writing content, whether that's you're actually becoming an influencer, you're writing... Mm -hmm. like writing on LinkedIn is, is almost as valuable as anything else these days. Like I, I think this might be controversial to say, but like, I think your following on LinkedIn matters more than your email list these days. Like, okay. Yep. Right. Like why, e why e email is pretty crowded. Email is showing up while they're trying to do their work and respond to colleagues but like, it's just such a hodgepodge right now, your email. But when you're on LinkedIn, you're like, okay, I'm in, I'm in the mood to actually consume content here. I'm in the mood to actually hmm. uh, connect with other people, right? Like, it's not, hey, I'm in work mode. I'm in it, like analysis mode. It's, hey, I'm actually open to, to consuming stuff. And then if, they're, if they've decided to follow you, that's like your opt-in, right? Yeah. And so if, and it's like, it forces you to be a lot more clear and concise in your communication because you have a lot fewer words to say, obviously, right? 
Um, and then the, I think the algorithm is pretty favorable still, even though it's it's kind of gone down over time and you your exposure is a lot less. I think it's still a very viable channel. So as of right now, we'll see you know in a year or two if I update my thinking on this, but it's like, I think it is a very viable channel to get your message out there. So a lot of companies these days... So both from a company perspective and an individual perspective. Like you see a lot of people these days that that are becoming kind of the voice of their company. And that's yep. great. Um, but still so many companies get the company side of it wrong. So on their company profile, it's sign up for this webinar, read the press release, read our blog post, download it. No one gives a shit, which is why, which is why like companies still don't have good followings. But if you look at the companies that are acting more like individuals or personalities, what we know works for individuals, they're actually growing pretty rapidly. So I'm looking at like yeah. Gong. Uh, yeah. Outreach used to be a lot better at this. Drift used to be a lot better at this. Probably probably when Dave DG was back yeah. there, right? <laughs> um, Refined Labs, Gravy was better at that. Actually, Gravy's kind of gone quite completely on social. But like a lot of these brands actually are acting more like individuals with strong opinions and posts that are pure thought leadership don't have a call to action. Mm-hmm. And those are the brands actually really growing. So I think I think that's when your LinkedIn following becomes more valuable than your actual email list. Yeah. And it's not a vanity metric active. anymore. Yeah. And you're pretty active on LinkedIn too. Like how do you what what are your goals? I don't know if that's the right word, but like what what are you trying to do on LinkedIn right Yeah, now? good question. No, uh, so yeah, how I think about LinkedIn is I love LinkedIn because, well, one, like I, I just love helping out other people. Um, so if I can put something valuable out there and it helps someone else, that that makes me happy. But it also is one of those things where it really makes me it it, it makes me um think a little bit deeper about how I'm communicating things. Right. So if it's yeah. all in my head, great. But if I can't actually say it or put it down on paper, like is it a, a fully formed thought yet? Like a lot of times I'm sitting down, I'm like, oh, I want to write a piece about XYZ for LinkedIn. And then I start writing. And I'm like, oh, maybe I don't know this as well as I thought I did. Yeah. And I, it helps me refine my thinking. But also, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's a short, it's a really short and quick feedback loop. So I can I can actually put something out there, test it, get people's reactions to it, and then refine my thinking. And then it just it just um it, it yeah that that short feedback loop helps me a lot so it helps me test ideas test messaging test things um but then of course i think there's so much value in building relationships with a lot of people out there i think that that has really helped me a lot in my career so if i if i put some good stuff out there i start connecting with other really smart people and then i'm facing a challenge i i need to figure out community here well now i have my own community that i can tap into that says hey anyone out there really build a strong successful successful community how are you thinking about it you know what's what's your playbook let me talk to you or a lot of times it's hey can i put someone who works in uh works for me in touch with you that sort of thing yeah so so many benefits to actually posting regularly on linkedin yeah i love it this is just one of those things where I think the direct benefits to the company are not always immediate or obvious to a lot of folks, but it, it, it comes, especially like, I mean, you see that happen with 
DG. Uh, you saw that happen with like Chris Walker with her fine labs, right? Like because people were familiar with them as individuals, they yes. drip, right? Yes. Um, what you said about message testing really resonates, like mm. get some clarity on a message, test it out, see if it gets any bites or any reactions. Great. Cool. Got some reactions, got some contra- like some contrasting opinions. Let's yes. turn this into a blog post or let's, let's put this in a next newsletter and see if we get any, like continue testing it and refining the idea some more. So that's really helped with like positioning or how we talk about concepts that I don't personally see a lot of people talking about. So it, it's, it's helpful in that respect. Cool. Um, you made this interesting jump from demand gen guy to product marketing, which is kind of rare. Mm-hmm. How, how did you end up doing that? You mentioned earlier that you looked for opportunities, right? And I think yeah. this might be relevant to folks who also feel like they're getting pigeonholed into a certain role. So how do you expand your responsibilities in a way that you did? Yeah, good, good question. Yeah, it's, 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 it's less helpful for people if I say, oh, I just wanted to make the change and then I made the change. Yeah, yeah th- there's actually yeah, a, a good point. A lot that actually went into that. So I was always... Like I was always uh, pretty knowledgeable when it came to product, being an early uh, hire at a lot of companies. Of course, you're doing a lot. A lot of it is product marketing. So it was something that I was familiar with and had done a lot. Um, and, And then when I was getting ready to make that transition, it was a few things. It was one, really having strong stories about how I've done product marketing in the past and uh, your your situation action result framework is a great one that like okay so it's like even though you didn't you weren't in a product marketing role you're like hey i'm kind of already doing this stuff as part of my current role yeah exactly exactly huh. and it's just it's just making sure i have those stories at the ready so that that when i'm talking about it or when they ask about you know a certain piece of product marketing i can actually pull that up Instead of okay, let me let me think about how I'm going to talk about this on the fly during an interview for a company that I really want the job at. Yeah, that's not the right place to test how you're your messaging, right? Or test how you're telling that story. Uh, do that beforehand, and then go out and actually like have conversations with your friends, your colleagues, your your spouse, whatever, and be like, okay, where where in my story does it not add up, or where can I improve, or what doesn't make sense in my story. Um, I, I actually did this with with our good f- mutual friend Joe Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, yeah. Joe, here's okay, here's how I tell my story. Poke holes in it, and he gave me some great advice on on um, how I could actually tell my story a little bit better. And he was, of course, on the podcast a few months ago. Highly encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode. Jo, uh, Joe is the man. So um, yeah, he's uh, that was a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was great. Uh, I, I I learned a lot about. Joe in marketing, even after having known Joe for a long time. So, yeah. But, um, how how did you know Joe? I think I saw you also went through Tradecraft. Was it? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. That's how that's how I met Joe through the the Tradecraft okay. boot camp, and and him and I just st- stayed in touch ever since. And you know, he's kind of one of my go to guys when I when I have questions about marketing or I want to geek out about something or I just want to go on a rant I, in the middle of the night. I just, <laughs> Put up and I text Joe. I was like, "Dude, can you believe this? This BS." <laughs> I love it. We, I think we all need that. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I also want to ask. This might be more related to the the LinkedIn topic of kind of building your audience, but you you hosted and host 
uh, podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. You started the RevOps podcast when I believe you were, was it at, where was it? Ring DNA, Revenue.io, yeah. Ring, yeah, Revenue.io. I still, I was going to say Ring DNA, but I was like, that's not what it's called anymore. So I still say Ring DNA sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you started the RevOps podcast there and now you're doing the OG Ops podcast. Uh, tell us more about like why you decided to start this this new podcast. Yeah, totally. Okay, so so one, I love, I, I do love podcasting. I still think, even, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of pandering right now because we're on a podcast talking about podcasts. You're not going to argue with me <laughs> on why podcasts are awesome, but um, like, yeah, I even with so many podcasts out there, I still think it's the early days, the wild west of podcasts. It's you know, podcast is the new blogs yeah. back in 20 you know 2005 or whatever it was there's still so much opportunity out there um and it's just another great way to get your thought leadership out there but it for me personally it's also another way to like going back to like you said uh it relates to linkedin refine my own thinking about this stuff and have good mm-hmm. interesting conversations with other people and and also help me network and build relationships with other really smart talented people so i actually I started a podcast back in 2015, back when back when podcasts were just was new, like yeah, yeah, like relatively new, and it was in the sales space. And I went out, I interviewed all the big names in the sales space, and then here we are, you know, eight years later, and I'm still in touch with some of those people. And like th- these are these are your bigger names in sales, like even recently, John Barrows, you know, mm-hmm. and and then from there, like I. A few years later, John and I were still in touch, and my wife was running, uh, setting up an RKO for her company. And she's like, "Who should I? Who should I have speak at my uh, my team's RKO?" And I was like, "How about John John Barrows?" Introduced them to John Barrows. John Barrows did their RKO. You know, it was a you know fifteen thousand dollar deal for him, and now I just helped John Barrows bring in fifty thousand dollars. You know. <laughs> And he's casual. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and now, of course, he's gonna like if I need if I want to reach out to him or anything like that, he's gonna reply to me now. So it's just a great way to to continue to build the uh, uh, build the community, build the network, and 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 also give back. I also think so. I also think it's like it can be an interesting ABM strategy as well. Mm-hmm. So you invite on industry thought leaders hopefully at target accounts and then you actually get into these companies um because you had them on your podcast i so in my my podcast back in 2015 we actually stumbled on this so it was um we, we invited some of these industry thought leaders onto the podcast we had a great conversation and they were like Hey Brandon, I I really like you. This was a cool conversation. So so what does persistent you actually do? Maybe I should look into yeah. this. And we ended up closing a like, bunch of deals. Wait a because, minute. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, this is this is interesting. I like this. Uh, and and actually, uh, yeah, a little story. I actually closed. Uh, there was there was one quarter I closed more deals myself, only based off of the podcast, than the whole sales <laughs> team did in one of the quarters. It was the just whole sales the, team. The whole sales team. The, all, all three of them, but yes. <laughs> okay. Wow, that is. Well, that's the first I've I've known of the ABM tactic. Um, that's the first I've heard of using a podcast to close more deals than a sales team. I think that, like, for anyone saying, "Oh, it's the podcast space is too crowded, or it's too many, or it's like 
too late or whatever. It's not too late. It's there. I, I was speaking to my cousin who started a podcast during the pandemic, just like a personal project. And I was like, why'd you decide to start, start a podcast? Yeah. And she said, you know, there's a lot of mediocre work out there. And I believe I can be better than at least half of those. Like there's room for me. And Heck yeah. that was, that was Heck kind yeah. of an impetus for me. Like, oh yeah, that's definitely a better framing, right? Like, of course with the bell curve, like all of that, like there's gotta be an average, but if you can at least try to be better with every episode that we're producing, yeah, there's room. There's room for more folks to, to join and produce content as we're seeing with all the content we're seeing every day. So yeah, I, I agree. It's still early days. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Like what, what, what is your unique perspective out there? So back, back in 2015, one of our unique perspectives was actually like, we wanted it to be a real story-based podcast, but still delivering a lot of value. So, um, so rather than, rather than interviewing one person and then the podcast being about that one person, we interviewed five people, asked them five questions. And then the episodes themselves were actually all five people answering the one question. And then it was, tell me a story about how you closed your biggest deal and what you learned from it. So they would go into a story a and question, then, yeah. yeah and, 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 then, and then at the end, it's like, okay, here's the actionable takeaway. And then you got that same from five people. And then also the benefit is now I have five people promoting five episodes, all five people promoting all five episodes or whatever that was, you know? Um, so that, that was our unique angle there. And then here at the OG Ops Pod, so the OG Ops Pod that I'm running right now, we just launched, is the first podcast that I'm doing that's not associated with the company that I'm working with. So that if I if I leave, I don't obviously intend to leave Crosscheck. I love Crosscheck, but like if I leave Crosscheck, I can still do the podcast. That's why I have done a few different podcasts at this point. Is when I leave the company, they don't let me take the podcast with me. <laughs> Yeah, you can't just take over the RevOps podcast. You got to start another Ops podcast now. Yeah, so. exactly. So that's why Jordan and I, yeah, Jordan Henderson, who's a who's a real true thought leader in in uh, revenue operations. That's why him and I started it. It's like let's not relate this to, or uh, connect this to our companies in any way, so that we can just continue to do it and have our own freedom and flexibility to do whatever we want with it. Yeah, it, it is really cool just now that we're deeper in a podcast space and doing this podcast, seeing that there's a lot more new voices coming up on the scene. Like I totally. think just a couple of years ago, it'd always be the same people on every podcast you listen to. Yeah, and yeah. now like, I'm sure, I'm sure not many people have heard of me. Um, I think maybe more people have heard of you than they have of me, but even then, like um, I don't see you like on every single podcast. Um, it seemed like you went through a little uh, stint where you were on a lot but there are more folks starting their own podcast and highlighting new voices that I think is important. Like you brought up thought leadership a handful of times. There's a certain point where the previous thought leaders aren't really thought leaders anymore. And they're dude, kind of totally. saying what they used to say 10 years it's ago. It's the same <laughs> thing. Exactly. Dude, that drives me crazy with some, yeah, some of the big thought leaders out there. It's like, and it's almost like they go on to like, okay, I got to do the media tour now. And, yeah. and, and they're more like, so this is like my problem with kind of the the, the evangelist role is that they're they're so focused on just like getting them and their names out there and their ideas out there that they're not actually ever, they're not doing the work anymore. There's there's this one ABM evangelist and he was on a podcast or no he was on stage at a conference and he was talking about how to do X Y Z and I'm like yeah that that's actually 
wrong. That's how you did it three years ago. <laughs> if you actually were a practitioner still, you would know that that's not how you actually do with this one thing anymore. So that that's, yeah, the, a little quick side rant. But yeah, get, get more practitioners yeah. on the podcast. Get people actually in the weeds doing the stuff. Yeah. The tough part is it's those folks that they're like, I don't have anything interesting to say. I was like, no, you have the exact things that people should be hearing totally, about because you're like, you're actually on a cutting edge and doing this stuff rather than hearing it through a proxy who's like, I don't know, maybe you're a CMO who's not as involved in the nuances. Like they probably yep. know it at a high level, but can't exactly speak to how you're doing it. So yeah, prop like hundred percent to that. Totally. What are you seeing? So RevOps is kind of one of those things that's it's I'd say it's rel- a relatively new concept, mm-hmm. maybe over the last couple of years. Yep. What are kind of the leading thoughts you have around how RevOps should be done? Because I think it was like marketing ops and sales ops, and all of a sudden it became messed yeah. into RevOps. So what's going on there? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's such an interesting space because um, yeah, maybe like a a a year ago or maybe a little bit more, it was all about all right, let's Let's always like everyone should be under one roof. All your ops should be under one roof. And then what happened was just a lot of people with sales titles got the rev ops title, but they were still a sales ops person. And then the marketing ops person would now then have to report into the sales ops person. So marketing actually lost their best. Yeah. Marketing. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Dude, that's that's happened so many times. So so actually at Crosscheck, we do have a head of RevOps. And when I came in, there's also a marketing ops person um, who's who's killer, who's amazing. And I said, no, she's staying on my team. She's not going over to RevOps, sorry. And I think that's the right call. Of course, she works very closely with the RevOps team, but you know, her background really is on the sales side. So how do I expect, like what why should I expect someone? who has a sales background, who's always worked in sales, who who knows everything in and out of the sales operation side, how do, why do I expect them to know how to actually run marketing operations? Yeah. Right. So if, if you have a true RevOps person who knows both sides of the house and who can actually do each side of the house, okay, great. Let's call it RevOps. Let's roll everyone up under RevOps. But another missing piece that is talked about less is the uh, uh, the CS ops side. So CS ops is becoming a thing more oh. and more these days, and and a lot of people, I mean, they they just have a lot less experience around what CS ops actually is. And there's a whole different set of skill sets and a whole different set of tools and processes that you have to know. So a lot of times, rev ops. So w- when rev ops doesn't just mean sales, it's it, it all it. Now it just means sales and marketing. So we still yeah. don't have true rev ops because of revenue, your revenue team is your sales, marketing, and success team. So how how do you reconcile that? Because I mean, there's usually like the center of excellence, everyone reports up into ops, and then they have their stakeholders in marketing, sales, and CS. In this case, it sounds like the individual like marketing ops reports to marketing, sales ops reports or rev ops reports to sales, CS ops reports to CS. But would that lead to disjointed ops programs running or i guess you can potentially communications yeah well yeah exactly that's that's exactly where my mind was going like if you have a true if you have a true revenue team that acts as one team and like you have the same objectives you have the same goals you do 
you do this joint planning. Um, if you, if if you have all the silos actually broken down, it actually works well. Where it doesn't mm-hmm. work well is yeah, when you do just have your individual silos where everyone is just focus on doing their thing and only their thing, and they have separate goals, then yeah, you'll you'll get either processes that break or you get data that's incongruent or you'll get duplicative work done and it's it is a lot less efficient so as long as you have the underlying infrastructure set up on your team the processes the people the data etc and you are working as one unified revenue team it 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 works pretty well it almost doesn't matter if it's reporting up into revops or they're in their own uh their own department still I love it. I love some of these non-intuitive takes. Um, Folks who want to hear more about RevOps, go to ogopspod.com. We'll make sure to link to it in the show notes as well. Heck yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we're coming up uh, on on time here. So I got some closing questions to to ask you here. Cool. Um, What's one opinion you have about business that you think people would disagree with? You've had a couple, but any other ones? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I've, 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 I've got a few. Um, okay, may, maybe maybe one that's more like more broad business and less marketing specific. Although it definitely applies to marketing, is like don't hire people who move around companies a lot, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. are which you you got to be careful still, but like. Look, people who have worked at more companies are just exposed to more ideas different than their own. And so so in my experience, that means they bring more cognitive diversity as long as that person is continuously learning along the way, right? Um, and, and what you're doing is you're stitching together different ideas, you're finding patterns, you're building your own lattice work there, you know, their own mental models of how to run marketing, how to be a good coworker, how to lead others, that sort of thing. And and to me, those people are highly valuable. And yes, there's a risk that they might not be at the company in 18, 24 months. But but one, you still might be better off hiring a superstar that makes a big difference and a material impact at your company than having an average person stay for five years. And then Mm -hmm. two... I'm actually betting on my own leadership and ability to manage people to create an environment that makes them want to stay. So, interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I don't I don't mind people who who jump around a lot. But that said, I like I do think you still have a, have to have a very good structured interview process so that you can hire truly great people, and that means intentional structured interviews. You know, uh, very good, thoughtful take-home assignments. Yes, I think you still need to do take-home assignments for people. Uh, you got to do I don't back get why channels. that's controversial, by the way. Dude, I know. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, I, I want to know. I want to know how you're actually going to work. So I'm going to yeah. give you work that's going to best represent the work that you actually do here. And it gives you a good taste of what you're going to be doing too. Yeah, like I need to know you're not bullshitting me too. <laughs> exactly. That is the best way to make sure that they're not bullshitting you. That and back channel references. I'm huge on back channel references. Yeah, I I learned about those uh, at one of my previous companies. I was like, oh, that's really smart. I'm gonna start doing that whenever I'm hiring now. Um, and usually, like nothing surprising has come up, but I've heard horror stories of someone doing a back channel, and they're like, yeah, I learned that this candidate was just completely lying to me. Hundred <laughs> like, oh, percent, dude. Yeah, and and that's actually another reason 
I didn't set out to do it, but another reason that like my network has been so valuable to me oh, was yeah. well, if I'm hiring marketers, there's a good chance that I I either know someone directly or can get in touch with someone who can do a good back channel reference. Or maybe I connected with this person five years ago. I made a good enough impression that they'll talk to me again. And yeah. then they'll actually open up about uh, what it was like working with this person. So um, yeah, big believer on back channel references. Yeah. So, so anyone applying to cross check, don't, don't let her Brandon during a, <laughs> yeah, I will find out you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is, that's a pretty interesting take. I was just see, I was just looking at some LinkedIn profiles cause we're hiring for strategists. And mm. whenever I see one year here, one year there, one year here, I'm like, Oh, that's like, you can at least spend two years in one place that yeah. that's a red flag to me, but you're kind of taking a different tack where it's like, well, maybe they learned a lot of different stuff at each place and they've synthesized that and can bring something special. And maybe you can be that person to like tie them down and like get them to stick with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, and and hopefully they're jumping around because like they come in, they did what they needed to do and they're kind of moving on mm -hmm. to the next thing. Not they came in, they couldn't do their job. They lost their job. They need to find a new job, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's part of the whole interview process. If you have a good structured, thoughtful interview process, mm -hmm. um, then, then hopefully you're going to be able to suss that out. And again, going back to back channel references, if they've jumped around a lot, there's actually a bigger chance that you, you have someone in common that you can talk to. Yeah. Good. I, that's my little nugget there. I'm going to go back to I'm going to go try to find a person again and be like, actually, let me reach out and see if they want to have a conversation because I might be missing some context. So thank you Heck for yeah. that reminder to not like jump to those assumptions. Cool. All right. Next question. What's one impactful piece of advice you've been given? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good question. So one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, it was actually from from Heaton Shaw, when I first landed, because mm -hmm. one of the first people I, I talked to when I landed in California, when I made the move out to California, because I wanted to get into tech. And like, this isn't his exact words. I don't know what they were, but it, it the, the spirit is make sure that the work that you're doing is also promoting yourself, not the company. And, mm -hmm. and what he was really talking about here is like, um, you know, he, he told me, I have to think of this as like a contract. The company is getting a lot out of you and you're helping the company build a successful business, but they also have a contract too, or an implicit one that you should hold them to. And, and they have to help you build your career. It's not a one-way thing here. Yeah. And, and honestly, if, if I don't do that, I don't actually get in front of John Miller and John Miller never sees me and hires me. And, and honestly, that was such a turning point in my career. So, um, so I really have to thank Heaton Shaw for that piece of infer or, or for for that piece of advice because I was really, really shy at that time about like putting my name on a blog post and then promoting it on my yeah. LinkedIn and then you know just just making sure that this blog post gets out there, which happens to have my name on it too. I think there are a lot of people out there these days that are so interested in promoting themselves over their company. And those people drive me crazy. And there's a lot of them on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and other places these days. But like, first promote your company, but don't be shy about also promoting yourself at the same time. Yeah, I, I love that you said that. Um, I've done something similar, but I've never actually advised others to do that, strangely enough. But mm. when I think back to it, like a HubSpot, like HubSpot's a great name to have on a resume. But I was mm -hmm. like, 
great. What else can I get out of this company? Because they're getting a lot out of me. Totally. They have tuition reimbursement. Great. Let me go take like take Reforge, take whatever course. Yes, heck yes. Um, like free books. Cool. Let me get all the free books from them. And speaking opportunities. Hell yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but let's figure it out. Like I wouldn't get these otherwise. And it seems similar to you where like you had these different roles at these companies talking about ABM. Great. Let's go on all these podcasts and talk about ABM. So I, I respect that. And I'm keeping in mind that that's something to remind others to do because it also makes it easier to get a job. It's like a portfolio out yep. in the open. Like look at these talks I've given and look at these other things that I've done. That's really cool. Nice. Heck yeah. What's one book you'd recommend more people read? Oh man, the, uh, so many books. Let's see. Um, okay, my favorite my favorite leadership book is called "Turn the Ship Around," and it's mm-hmm. by a guy named David Marquet. And his story is he he was uh, he took over the worst performing ship in the U.S. fleet, and in uh, something like two years, literally turned it around. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally was the captain of a ship. And he turned it around to make it the best performing ship in the fleet. And and this book, like lessons per page, is the highest density, <laughs> you know, book out there. I, I love it so. And there's there's like fifty chapters or something, and they're all very short, bite sized pieces. And I, I I go back to this book quite frequently, whether it's reading the chapter or I have it on Audible too. I'll just like throw it on Audible and just like listen to it and pick something else up. So like every time I listen to that book, I'm either reminded of something that will help me deal with whatever I'm dealing with currently, or um, I see things in a different way that like I'm interpreting it differently so I can actually learn a different lesson from it. So I'm, I, I'm a big fan of that book. I love it. I feel like leadership and management is still one of those nebulous things that is hard to figure out how to get better at besides like doing it yourself. Yeah. What are other maybe tactics you've used to get better at leadership and management, like whether it be books or exercises or like thought exercises or podcasts you've listened to? How have you developed? Yeah. So, so I think like a lot of people are like leadership came so natural to you. Uh, like it's not natural for me. Like you're just born with it. That's actually not the case at all. I, I, as I, as I mentioned to you, like I've always wanted to to lead a marketing team. Back when I was an individual contributor, back when like I was I was just getting started, I was reading shit, uh, books about leadership and about management. So like I started, I was reading books about it, bef- like probably five, six years before I even managed an individual person. So it was one of those things about like preparing myself for the career that I wanted so that when that opportunity came around, I was ready. But yeah, to kind of to your point, like just read a lot, listen to podcasts, like uh, th- there, there's read blogs, talk to other people. There's so much out there that gives you information on honestly, any topic these days, just go out and, and be a voracious learner and be very curious. Like that, that's really all that it comes down to. I, I, I do attribute a lot of my success uh, just to yeah, being curious and, and, and being a learner. And then when the opportunity comes along, when I get lucky, then I can actually capitalize on it. Like I'll, I'll tell people, all the time. I'm, I'm very average intelligence. Like I, I, I really do believe that, <laughs> but just like try reading 50 books a year and not at least sounding intelligent. Right. Yeah. Like it's hard to do. Yeah. I think that's a great place to stop. Good advice, man. So where can people find you on the internet? 
Yeah, probably best place is LinkedIn. Like you mentioned, I'm I'm relatively active. I still try to post a few times a week, and uh, I I'm not the best at in-mail. So if you if you shoot me an in-mail, don't be afraid. Like a week later, to be like, hey, just popping this back to the top of your 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 in-mail because I I do miss a lot. Um, I get a lot of junk in there still, but like hit me up on LinkedIn. I'll I promise I'll try to respond. Awesome. We'll make sure to link there. Brandon, really appreciated this conversation. Thanks for making the time to join us. No, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. 